All right, Devrin, imagine if you will, you're a CEO of a growing company. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Tell me more. Yeah, I figured you would, but you might not like what comes next. Now imagine your entire company's business model is about to come crashing down because of all things a lawsuit. And your only hope is to get the Supreme Court of the United States to hear your case. Oh, wow. The Supreme Court? That changes the scenario. That sounds like a total Hail Mary. It really is. And this is exactly what today's guest, Tim Healy, was facing back in 2014. A lawsuit that could destroy his company, Enernock. And this lawsuit, it was causing other executives in Tim's industry to just throw in the towel. It was potentially devastating. But not to Tim. He and his team got together and they said to themselves, we're going to fight this thing. We're going to find a way to get this in front of the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. That's a bold move. Yeah. And if you want to know who Tim is as a leader, his approach to getting the case heard says everything about him. It involved a chance encounter with President Obama's then chief of staff, a guy named John Podesta. So I had this unique opportunity to introduce John Podesta at an advanced energy economy conference. And so, you know, back to the entrepreneurial roots, what can I do to get John's attention? How can I, you know, not just be one of dozens and dozens of people that, you know, are going to chase after him as he as he exits the building. I said, I'm not going to wait till he exits the building. I'm going to figure out where his limo is pulling up and I'm going to get him right as he pulls out of the limousine and I'm going to have a little, you know, one pager bullet points that says John needs to ask President Obama to ask the Solicitor General of the United States to take this case. So I gather that Tim is a persistent guy. Yeah, if Tim is anything, he's persistent. And in this episode, we're going to hear about how that grit helped him build a pioneering company in demand response, a company that shaped markets, influenced a generation of cleantech leaders, and landed him in the Supreme Court. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy. I'm Brad Langley. I run a marketing team at Uplight. And I'm Devon Hobbs. I run a product team at Uplight. In this series, we talk with the founders, executives, and decision makers at the forefront of disruption and energy. What do their stories tell us about this crazy competitive business world we find ourselves in? In this episode, we talk with Tim Healy. Back in 2001, he co-founded a company called Enernock. And despite early doubts of investors and peers, major doubts, it became a pioneer in demand response. Enernock was one of the companies that turned demand response from this kind of obscure, low-tech process into a highly automated and powerful tool for managing the grid. It actually became so successful that it ended up threatening many incumbent utilities, and so they challenged it in court. And that's why Tim was forced to corner Obama's chief of staff. We're going to hear about what happened after that, but first, what led Tim to that moment? It was actually Tim's mom who first encouraged him to be an entrepreneur in a way that only moms can do with brutal honesty. It was shortly after I graduated from college and I was having a conversation with my mom and she said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. You know, I, I think I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And she says, that's good because I can't imagine you working for anyone. You're a pain in the ass. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about tough love. Yeah, it really was. And that wasn't the last time Tim would get tough love. In college, he met a guy who would eventually become his business partner in a marketing company. And that co-founder offered even sharper words. But they motivated everything that Tim did after that. Now, when you were at Dartmouth, though, did you not co-found a company with another student who was a bit 
more experience and a bit older. And I think he may have had a piece of advice for you that uh, was influential early on. Yeah. So you're exactly right. There was this guy who was a year or two older than I was. And afterwards, um, you know, he went to a big consulting firm and, you know, he, he got even more business and management experience. And then we got together about a year after I graduated from Dartmouth. And, um, you know, I don't think I've ever thanked him for the fact that you know, a couple of years into our entrepreneurial journey together, post-graduating, he made a comment to me. He said, you know, the reason I'm CEO and you're not is because I don't think you'll ever be a CEO. I think you're you're, you're more a middle manager. And, uh, and maybe that was cleaning it up a little bit. But, you know, that motivated me. And I don't think I've ever really had an opportunity to, to – to thank him for the fact that sometimes you say things maybe in the heat of the moment or you say things when, you know, you're battling out on, on some some issue of taking the business in one direction or another. And, um, you know, he said something to me in one of those moments that stuck with me and it served as a motivating factor. I really wanted to prove it to myself. I wanted to prove it to him and everybody else that, you know, I actually could become not just a student of entrepreneurship, but, you know, a student of leadership, of management. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that that wound up driving me for not just years, but I would say it's driven me for the last two and a half decades to, you know, really take that as motivation rather than as some sort of, you know, negative criticism. I'm imagining that for a young entrepreneur, those words, hearing that from somebody that you look up to, that could be really demotivating. But is Tim saying it actually had the opposite effect on him? It did, because you have to understand this about Tim. He loves proving doubters wrong. It's it's his guiding force. So after college, Tim goes to the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and it's there that he meets his future and you're not co-founder, David Brewster. And so they start looking for a new startup idea. They're examining how they can help big energy users take advantage of on-site generation. And that is when they discover demand response. All right, let's dig into demand response a little bit. So... This happens when there's like a really hot summer day and everybody has their AC on and they're cooling their buildings, their stores and their homes. And so because of that, energy usage spikes. So in order to handle that on the grid, there's remote controls that automatically dial it back for those big energy users like factories or grocery stores. And then they get paid for participating. Yeah. What you just described is the demand response of today. It is what Tim and David envisioned. But back then, demand response, you have to understand, it was still very low-tech and inefficient. It actually involved calling up big energy users one by one on hot days. So Tim and David thought, we can make this process way more efficient and way better. And that sounds great now, but back then they faced obstacles at every turn. Investors wouldn't touch it, the technology wasn't ready, and they were just two business school grads pretending they had the expertise to pull it all off. In all, I think you were rejected by, what, 36 venture capitalists or some insane number like that? Was it the complexity of the demand response market that made it hard for investors to understand your business model? Well, if you go back to 2000 and 2001, when we were having our initial conversations with investors, you got to keep in mind that the term clean tech did not yet exist. The idea of investing in energy technology was not mainstream at all. And in fact, when you looked around at the landscape of venture capital firms and how they allocated the different sectors of investment that they were interested in, 
I can't recall at that time a single venture capitalist telling us that they had just gotten approval from their limited partners to invest 3% or 5% or 10% of their fund in the energy sector. That was just a sector that wasn't one that was deemed to be interesting or full of innovation and attractive financial returns. And what we were doing wasn't something that was familiar to a lot of folks. We were also operating in a highly regulate, regulated environment. And so it had, you know, had, a, had a lot of impediments to success. So after 40 meetings, you finally get funding. Now it's time to start building some revenue. When did you meet your first customers? And talk me through how you landed that first all-important deal. Yeah, so I had the great privilege of working with a gentleman named David Brewster for all 17 years that we ran Enernock together. And in the early days, it was just David and me. You know, we met in a study room. We started the business in a conference room that we commandeered and we stole the key to. And shortly after we graduated, we huddled around and said, let's start making some cold calls to some customers and see what we can see what we can scrounge up. And he wound up calling a supermarket chain that's headquartered in Maine. And I remember him calling me shortly after and he says, we've got one. We've got a customer that's willing to have a meeting with us. Um, I explained to them that ISO New England is introducing a new demand response opportunity and this customer, this grocery store, has done innovative things to try to cut their energy costs because their margins are so razor thin. They'll, you know, they believe that we could help them. And so I said, okay, so what's our next step? He said, we got to go up there. We got to sit down and explain that we can remotely turn on and off their lighting system and turn on and off their backup generators when ISO New England calls a demand response event. And I said, how the hell are we going to do that? We can't. <laughs> and he said, "Well, let's let's see if we can uh, convince ourselves and and convince them that we can figure it out." And so, you know, the next thing you know, we looked in our network and we had a a colleague of ours that we had worked with one summer, and he had built remote control capabilities for, you know, sending robots into uh, dangerous situations. Uh, he had built remote control capabilities for flywheel energy storage systems. And we explained to him that we needed his help doing this. And we said, the first thing you need to do is pretend you're on our team, carry an Enernock business card, and come up and meet with uh, one of our prospective customers up in up in Maine. And he did so. And he shined. He told them that this was simple. We could you know, remotely control some of their energy assets and that we'd make them you know, tens of thousands of dollars next summer for getting involved. What uh, what was happened technologically at this time that enabled the remote control of demand response? It was it was early for sensors and software as a service and networking in general. How did you and your co-founders see what could be possible through technology? Well, I mean, you know, what we're trying to do to us didn't seem didn't seem all that complex. What we found was that the existing infrastructure had been built 15, 20, 25 years prior, and there wasn't an easy way to communicate via, you know, some sort of internet connection to, you know, relatively dated existing infrastructure of our customers. So we were, you know, left finding creative ways to do this. Um, 
I can remember that you know one of our early customers, we had to turn on and turn off some of their equipment using dial-up modems. And the way we did that to begin with while we were building a more advanced solution, we just had an all-hands-on-deck mentality, and we had every phone line in the company open, and we were dialing in to these different sites out in California to shut a supermarket's uh, or to trick a supermarket's lighting system into believing that we were turning them from full-on in the middle of the daytime to their night stocking mode. And we'd have to go through a whole routine dialing in via these dial-up modems in order to, to make that happen. And then, you know, someone in the operations group, and when I say someone in the operations group, we were only 10 people at that time. Someone would say, okay, all clear. It's time to turn the lighting system back to normal mode. And, you know, the other nine people would start dialing up the dial-up modem and follow a little script, pressing eight, seven, two, one, three, and, you know, get those things to be tricked back into their normal mode. So, you know, it's it's this is a common entrepreneur story of, you know, it can't be done yet, but let's see what we can do with what exists today and then let's build the solution for tomorrow. And that's clearly what what we were doing back in the, you know, 2002, three, four timeframe. All right. So at this point, they've started to prove that the business model works, but what happens when they start to scale? Well, the team is growing. They're bringing in contracts. Things are really clicking. But there's a moment in 2005 that forces Tim to think differently about his role as a leader. All right, so things are going pretty well at this time. The business is growing. But then you have this moment where you had to do a bit of soul searching. I think it was when you met your 67th employee, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us what happened? It happened in an elevator. Um, I was riding up the elevator to the second or third floor, and I was in an in the elevator and there was a gentleman in the elevator with me and I introduced myself and asked, you know, what floor that person was going to, what company they work for. And they said, I work for Enernock. And I had to say, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. And, you know, I, I met this person in the elevator. They'd been working there for the last week or so. And I realized that, wow, this was going to be very, very different that we were, you know, bringing people into the organization that I hadn't ever met. Um, and that there was that there were new things that I was going to have to experience and get comfortable with. I was going to have to trust in a new way the people around me to make sure that that they were managing their parts of the business the way I'd like those parts of the business to be managed. So, it I think it really just had to do with trying to get myself comfortable with the fact that I couldn't control every decision. I couldn't control every hire, every investment, every termination or every change that we were, you know, thinking of making. And, you know, up until that point for the prior two or three years, I'd had, you know, the ability to to see everything as it was happening and make sure that I could protect us from the things that, you know, I wanted to protect us from and make sure we were heading in the direction I wanted us to go. You mentioned thinking about maybe handing off the company to somebody else were were those doubts real like did you actually give serious consideration to bringing somebody else into the business or selling at at that point i'd be surprised if every entrepreneur doesn't think that at some point um you know 
there comes a point in time where the business is going to need to be transitioned for one reason or another. The question just is, how soon does that take place? Um, you know, so succession thinking is something that we thought about in the earliest days, and it was always on my mind. You know, to me, the question was really, can I build this to such a level that there is actually something to hand off, that there's something meaningful and important? I didn't know if I was going to be good at this. I didn't know if, um, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs, if they can have that type of healthy mentality that says there may come a point where I'm better letting this be managed by someone else than continuing to run it myself, that that's where the soul searching came in. And, and I asked myself, do I want to do that? And I think it was two things that made me say yes. One. I loved Enernock to its core. I loved what we were doing. Uh, I loved the people around me. I loved the market that we were in and the ability to impact change. And the second thing was I love a challenge and I love to challenge myself. And I, I think I am not unlike a lot of people. I get bored doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and to me, this was the next challenge. The next challenge was can we take Enernock to the next level? Can I, with my co-founder and, and the great management team that I'd hired at that point, figure out how to make this bigger, get to the next level, and make the impact that we thought we were sitting on the cusp of making? And so you stay the course, you keep building this business, and then invariably you come to do a decision, it's time to go public. It's obviously a very high moment in a company's history. What did you think that Enernock could do as a public company that would be more difficult to achieve as a private company? Going public was nothing more than just the application of a very consistent approach. We had been rejected by countless venture capital firms. It took us an extra year to raise money to get the company off the ground. And that left an impact on me. And I said, when we get the opportunity to raise capital, whether we need that capital or not, we're going to take advantage of it because when it's hard to raise venture capital or when it's hard to raise your next uh, set of capital resources, that's not when you want to be out raising money. And so to me, it had everything to do with raising capital and stockpiling that capital for future need. And because of applying that strategy of raise capital, even if you don't necessarily have a specific need for it, we were able to muscle through the economic downturn of 2008 in a way that I'm not sure we would have if we hadn't hustled to raise capital when we did. Well, so you must have felt pretty damn good at this point, right? I mean, you went from 40 VC meetings and doors getting slammed in your face. I think one even told you it was one of the worst business plans he'd ever seen um, to going public. Now, you don't strike me as the kind of person that pours a scotch and starts calling people and saying, I told you so, uh, but you must have done something to celebrate. So what was that moment like for you personally? And what did you do to uh, commemorate it? Right after we'd been on a two-week roadshow, I turned a uh, two-week roadshow to take Enernock public. And I hadn't been home in easily two weeks, hadn't slept in my own bed in quite some time. And I was dog-tired after taking the company public. My wife says, you're flying out to California. And I said, I'm flying out to California because I have to speak at this conference on Saturday morning. She says, can't you just skip it? 
I said, I'm not going to skip this one for the world because that very same venture capitalist that you mentioned that had told me that the Enernock business plan was the worst business plan he had seen in his career was hosting a fireside chat and and I was his guest at, you know at a Saturday afternoon conference in Silicon Valley and um, there was just something fun about being able to go and I knew that he was going to be you know incredibly good spirited about it he was he joked on stage that you know you win some you lose some and this was one that uh, he had made the wrong call on so it was just a a fun thing to do and it you know it was especially fun because at the end of the day when do you get the opportunity to you know look back on something 5 years later and and joke around with someone um that they had simply made you know a judgment and that judgment didn't wound up uh, panning out the way they thought, but it very well could have. You know, who knows? Uh, at the end of the day, we were lucky, we were good, and our timing was right. And uh, I remain friends with with that venture capitalist to this day. So it sounds like things are going really well, but is it going a little too well? What happens next? <laughs> so as usual, Devon, your instincts are right. Uh, the business model demand response, it became so successful that it actually started to threaten existing players in the industry. So a group of utilities get together and file a lawsuit aimed at market rules allowing demand response to compete. As the case starts working its way through the courts, it threatens to bring down everything and they're not get built. The next thing you know, our stock takes a dive. I mean, when I say takes a dive, we're losing 40, 50% of our market value as the effect of seeing this case migrate through the the court system and into the appeals process. You know, you look at what a lot of our demand response brethren did in in that environment and a lot of them before it, you know, all played out had sold their companies off um, for, you know, discounted values to bigger companies because there was no certainty that the future was going to get better. So here's where things start to get real. Tim has a choice. He can either try to completely rework the business model, bail out of the market entirely, or stand up and fight the case in the Supreme Court. Well, that's not even a choice for Tim. He's going to fight it, right? He absolutely did. But it was highly unlikely that he could even get that far. All cases that are presented, they have a less than 1% chance of being in front of the Supreme Court. But based on a number of factors you could get as high as a 49% chance. And that 49% chance meant that, you know, among some other things, it meant your highest odds up to about one in two were if the Solicitor General of the United States made a case that they wanted to argue this case in front of the Supreme Court. And so we were looking for any angle we could to try to get um, the Solicitor General of the United States to put in a word on behalf of the administration to say that this was a case worth taking. Now I see why Tim was tracking down John Podesta. Yeah, and going back to Tim's persistence, he was actually able to find him. And so sure enough, I get my two minutes walking with him down the hall as he's coming out of the limousine. I explain in high-level terms that we need his help because all demand-side resources, all the energy efficiency opportunities in the United States are going to be negatively affected if we don't change the outcome. And I then introduce him as the keynote speaker for this conference, 
And the first comment he makes is, you know, I was just hearing something really interesting going down the hall that Tim told me, and I got to look into this this afternoon. It sure would stink if all of you guys in this room don't have every opportunity possible to make your businesses, to make the energy efficiency and demand response activities that you guys are engaged in meaningful and important in the future of the American energy economy. So that's got to be a really good sign for you and maybe gives you some hope that you'll grab the attention of the Supreme Court. But even then, the odds are still stacked against you. So I have to ask, personally, how are you doing at the time? What did this experience tell you about how you handle a crisis? There were a lot of people who, again, told me that this probably wasn't the best course of action for Enernock to take. They doubted us. They doubted me. They doubted that decision to take this on. And, you know, there were times during that period of time where I did feel more isolated and alone than than usual, where I felt like it was unfair that we were having to fight this big of a challenge and that you know, something so good for society, something so good for the, you know, energy innovation sector was having such a difficult time making its business work. And it frustrated me that we had lost so much market value for, you know, some of our um, more recent investors. But, you know, I think what it told me is if you've got a great team and a great support infrastructure, you'll find a way to, you know, make success happen. And I'm told um, through some, you know, back channels that the plea was made and that, you know, shortly thereafter, we learned that the Supreme Court was going to take our case. And God, what a, what an exciting time. I mean, it was, it was crazy that little old Enernock, this, relatively small, unknown company was going to have the opportunity to try to impact the way our energy resources were treated in our nation's markets for not just that year, but for forevermore. Give me the play-by-play when the ruling comes down. Where are you? What's your reaction? Were you feeling confident? What's the first call that you make? Just talk me through that scene of when that ruling comes down. Yeah, so it's, it's crazy. You get to watch this stuff online, like a ticker tape, but, you know, on our laptops. And my senior vice president of marketing and communications sees it and just starts tearing up. And she starts hugging me. And I'm like, what? What does it say? What does it say? And she says, we won. We won the case. And so I then proceed to, I think we had three floors at that point in our headquarters and I proceed to hurt everybody's hand that was willing to give me a high five as I just sprinted through the office like a one of my crazier you know adult moments was just sprinting through the office, high fiving, hugging, hugging people that you know I think I knew their first name, but you know I'd be hard pressed to to tell you that I knew everyone's last name, but I'm hugging them as though they were family at you know a family reunion, and it was just awesome. I love that image of Tim running around the office, giving out high fives. So everybody at Enernock celebrates and the demand response industry celebrates. So is it smooth sailing from there? Despite that moment of euphoria, unfortunately, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing after that. 
I'm not sure that Enernock ever fully recovered from the impact of having to fight that Supreme Court case. Granted, our stock went up 70% on the day that that was announced, but that didn't make up for the you know deterioration to the value of the company and to you know the faith that investors could have that a demand response business was suitable for the public markets. So then I imagine it must have been very difficult to make the decision to sell Enernock later on. Um, what led you to that decision? Shortly after we won the Supreme Court case in 2016, you know, pretty much every month I was fielding another call from another large private equity firm that was you know, picking my brain about whether it made more sense for Enernock to be privately held than it did to be publicly held. And what resonated there with me was that in addition to all of the regulatory noise that we had experienced, not just within the Supreme Court case, but regularly a clean tech company is going to have a lot more regulatory noise around it than your typical software company, than your typical service company, than your typical you know, business-to-business or business-to-consumer internet company. So for the most part, we were one of these really challenging stocks, um, misunderstood in the marketplace with wild swings in our valuation from year to year that correlated mainly to the amount of regulatory noise and to maybe the, you know, price of the capacity markets in some of the, the, the world's largest capacity markets. Very difficult environment to be a publicly traded company. And you know, sometime in late 2016, we brought it to a vote at the board and we said it makes sense to explore you know, taking the company in a new direction, taking it out of the public markets. And um, you know, we were very fortunate to put the company in the hands of a, of a new owner like Enel at the end of a very, very long process. So Tim's talking about Enel, the big multinational utility, right? Yeah. So in 2017, Enel purchased Enernock along with a few other companies and rebranded them as Enel X. So the Enernock name no longer lives on, but the business model does continue. And it's now being combined with lots of other cool energy companies under Enel. But the impact of this story goes beyond Enernock and even demand response. It changed how big and small companies manage energy. It also changed the way we think about efficiency. And it ultimately opened the door to a new generation of people working in clean technology. So I'm, I'm curious, did your thesis on demand response as a platform for a more dynamic grid, did it ultimately pan out as you originally envisioned it? You know, I think I think it has. I mean, you know, in my in my work today, um, I'm spending a, a lot of time advising uh, a handful of companies. You know, we're now seeing the next generation of demand response entities. We're now seeing how storage opportunities, particularly battery battery storage opportunities, are leveraging some of the very market constructs that Enernock and other demand response providers help shape. We're seeing companies that are taking what Enernock did in terms of helping their customers leverage some of the market access, they're taking it to, you know, whole new levels. They're, you know, taking energy efficiency to the new level. They're taking data and information management to a new level. They're getting customers engaged in ways that they they wouldn't have otherwise been. 
Um, I am incredibly optimistic about the future. It's why I still, you know, spend most of my working hours entirely engaged in the energy ecosystem today. Tim, I actually owe you a thank you because it was uh, Internoc that got me interested in energy in the first place. I was living in Boston back in the 0405 time frame, and you guys yeah. were the hot thing back then. So I came back home, joined a new agency, heard they were starting a clean tech practice, and I said, I want in on that. And uh, the rest <laughs> is history. So thank you. That's great. I love hearing that. That's one of the things that, you know, when I reflected back on 17 years of Internoc, the fact that we you know, we did bring a lot of people into the industry that may have been uh, looking for their path into clean tech, into energy technology, and that mattered to me in the end. And, you know, as I look around right now and I see hundreds of Enernockers at, you know, different places these days, and they credit, you know, some story of success or some fun time they had that, that kept them in the industry or brought them to the industry in the first place. That's just awesome stuff. I love that. Well, thanks, Tim. This has been a real treat for me. I, I do greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a treat for me, too. I really appreciate it. Tim Healy co-founded Enernock with David Brewster and served as the CEO for nearly two decades before stepping down in 2017. In the next episode, we talk to Patty Poppy, the CEO of Consumers Energy, the biggest power company in Michigan. We're going to hear how she applied lessons from the auto industry to the energy business. Illuminators is a podcast from Uplight, a software and analytics leader changing the way the world uses energy. If you like this show, please support us by subscribing and then sending out the word on social media or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more at uplight.com slash illuminators. Illuminators is produced by Postscript Audio in collaboration with Uplight. Stephen Lacey and Daniel Waldorf are our producers. Our theme music is composed by Title Card Music and Sound. I'm Brad Langley. And I'm Devon Hobbs. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy. Mm-hmm.